Yeah, there you go. So for the next number of weeks, beginning today, we'll be taking a deep dive into something which, if you'll notice, is at the very center of the Bible, so you can't miss it. It's called Wisdom Literature, and we'll take the majority of our time and weeks looking at the book of Proverbs before we go on to Job and Ecclesiastes. But let's begin this morning by looking in Proverbs chapter 8, and you can follow along on the screen or in the Bible that you brought with you to church today. All right, here we go. Uh, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 1. Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gate leading into the city, at the entrance, she cries aloud. To you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. You who are simple, gain prudence, choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have inside, I have power. By me, kings reign and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me, princes govern and nobles, all who rule on earth. I love those who love me and those who seek me, find me. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago, uh, ago at the very beginning when the world came to be. When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water. Before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I was there when he set the heavens in place when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Now then, my children, Listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For those who find me find life and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me harm themselves. All who hate me love death. And that's God's word this morning from Proverbs. Has there ever been a more complicated day and age in which to live? Samuel Arbsman is what's called a complexity scientist. Now, you didn't know these things existed, but they do. He's a complexity scientist. And Samuel Arbsman has taken a look at the world, all of our smartphones, all of our gadgets, all of our laptops, computers and screens and cameras and everything all around us. And he says that today is a culture because life has gotten so complicated, we have moved from living in the enlightenment to something called the entanglement the entanglement, and he makes a case that our world now of the entanglement is too hard to understand anymore, even for the smartest people. This is what he wrote. He said, for centuries, humans have been creating ever more complicated systems, from the machines we live with to the informational systems and laws that keep our global civilization stitched together. 
the encroachment of technological complication through increased computerization has affected every aspect of our lives from kitchen appliances to workout equipment. We are now living with the unintended consequences, a world we have created for ourselves that's too complicated for our humble human brains to handle. Anyone remember Y2K? It's true that the so-called millennium bug passed without serious complications, but this startling fact was that we couldn't be sure what would happen on 1 January 2000 because the systems involved were too complex. And he goes on to note, rightly, that for most of mankind's history, we used to assume that there were limits to knowledge. There was a limit to what we could know, but that for the last 200 years or so, we've thrown that idea out and pursued knowledge and technology as fast as we can, only to arrive back in the place that our ancestors were all along. And now we realize what they realized, that not only despite our progress, but because of our progress, we become more aware than ever that knowledge and information, understanding have limits. And therefore he goes on to say, we desperately need something. We need what he, need what he calls a translator of truth. The translator of truth. In other words, he's saying that the information alone, technology alone, science alone aren't enough to make it today. To make it in life, he says, we need a guide through the complexities of life. In other words, he's saying we need wisdom. We need wisdom. And he's right, and here's why. Because what wisdom literature in general and what the Proverbs in specific tell you is this. They tell you that the majority of your life takes place outside the rules. Takes place outside the rules. That's not to say that rules aren't important, that rules aren't unchanging. But when it comes to most of your life, and even more than that, when it comes to the most important parts of your life, who are you going to marry? What job are you going to take? Where are you going to live? How are you going to raise your kids? The most important things about your life take place outside the rules, whatever you think those rules are. So what do we need to make it? Well, we need wisdom. If you have it, Proverbs says, your life will flourish. You can live a life beyond your imagination. But if you don't have it, as we'll see, everything could come to ruin. So let's take an overview of the book of Proverbs this morning from chapter 8 under three headings. Number one, why we need wisdom. Number two, why it's so hard to find wisdom. And finally, we'll see how we can get wisdom. Let's begin here, number one, and look at why we need wisdom. Well, you can see right from the top of the passage in chapter 8, which we read. And by the way, we started there because essentially the first nine chapters are a lengthy introduction to the book. But the top of chapter 8, we read this. It's, wisdom is talking here. Wisdom is saying to you, O people, I call out. Wisdom says, I'm raising my voice. She appeals, choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than gold. For wisdom's more precious than rubies, nothing you desire can compare with her. She goes on to say, for those who find me find life, but those who fail to harm me essentially love death. So the chapter begins with a plea to get wisdom, but it ends with a warning to those who it says, fail to find it 
what's this telling us? Well, what this is telling us is that what is more important here, this, what's more important than your circumstances, what's more important than money or fame or being somebody who's liked or retweeted or re-Facebooked or whatever online, it's literally saying that what's better and richer and deeper and more satisfying than getting anything else you could desire is getting wisdom. It's getting wisdom. Now, that's that's a staggering claim. That's an enormous claim. Some of you hear that and you say, man, I don't know about that. You're already, you know, not even halfway through the first point, Morgan, and I'm already out, you know. Well, maybe some of you think like me, this sounds too good to be true. You may be saying, you know what, uh, I think there's a lot of stuff that could really help a brother out, maybe more than money, you know, like maybe starring in that next Marvel film that could really pay some bills. Because, you know, Morgan, it's kind of hard to eat wisdom for breakfast, if you know what I mean, right? So is what the Bible is claiming, is it really true? It is. And here's why. Here's why the writer of a proverb says you should desire wisdom above anything else. It's because being able to handle money is more important than someone's ability, your ability to make money. See, because lots of people can and do make money, fewer people can handle it. See, being able to handle being married is more important than getting married, right? I mean, lots of people can and do get married, fewer still can handle being married. I think I saw a hand or two in the back on that one. All right. See, being able to handle success is more important than becoming a success because many can and do become a success fewer still can handle that success. And many who get money, many who get married, many who get success can't handle it and wish they had never gotten any of it in the first place. You don't believe me? Cynthia Heimel was a writer for the Village Voice in Greenwich Village, New York for a number of years and she saw firsthand the overwhelming number of successful people and famous people who could not handle their success, couldn't handle their fame. And this is what she wrote about those people that she knew. She wrote this. She said, quote, I pity celebrities. No, I really do. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, and Barbara Streisand were once perfectly pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. You see, Sly, Bruce, and Barbara wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened, and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. Oh, what's she saying? Well, she's saying, among other things, they should have read the book of Proverbs. <laughs> they worked, and they worked to go after the rubies of success, the wealth of fame, but they didn't go after wisdom. They failed to find it, and they harmed themselves and others in the end. And that's why wisdom calls out. That's one reason why you need wisdom, because it's more valuable than money, fame, or success. That's a good reason. But it's not the only reason. And the other main reason that wisdom calls out, cries out to you is this, and I'll put it, I'll phrase it in the form of a question. 
How are you going to handle the majority of your life that falls outside the rules? Hmm? See, the rules, God's rules, the Ten Commandments, they're unchanging. They're binding on every life. But let's face it, most days you're not really confronted with whether to murder the guy in the cubicle next to you or not, right? I mean, you're not really tempted to put some poison in his coffee and see what happens. No, that's not most days for you. See, the commandments are important. They're important to keep you out of the times you might head into the ditch But how are you going to handle the majority of your life spent on the road, on the path, right? How are you going to handle that? Now, to handle that, you've got to realize what the book of Proverbs is telling you, which is this, that morality, hear this, morality is not the same thing as wisdom. Morality is not the same thing as wisdom. Ethics is not, are not the same thing as wisdom. Now, now, being wise is not less than being moral and ethical. I mean, look at verse 13 here. It says that wisdom hates evil, right? Hates pride, hates arrogance. So being a truly wise person will always include morality. Doing something wrong can never be wise. But how, how does morality, the rules, how does it answer questions like, How do I know if I should take this job or that job? Hmm? How do I know whether to confront that person in my life or not? And of course, it answers, and wisdom can answer the big question everybody who's here who's single asks every single day of their life. You know, who am I going to marry? Now, to know the answer to that question, you need wisdom. And let me show you how it works. Years ago, before Morgan and Carrie were Morgan and Carrie, they didn't just like each other. They like liked each other, if you know what that means. But neither of them could kind of figure out how to get the relationship off the ground. They'd been friends for six years, but the friendship had only sort of made it harder to kind of take the next step or move beyond that. So how did Morgan and Carrie become Morgan and Carrie? Well, wisdom stepped in. Through the voice of Carrie's mentor, a lady named Sandy. And out in California, Carrie had poured her heart out to Sandy about this guy she liked in Texas. But she couldn't tell where he was, if he wanted to move forward or not. And she said, Sandy, could you please help me out? And Sandy did help her out. And here's how Sandy helped her out. And me too, by the way. Sandy said this. She said, all right, this is what you do. You get him on the phone and you ask him, how do you feel about our relationship? And if he says, you know what, Uh, I'm glad we're friends, and that's all he says, you say, great, me too, me too. And if he says, uh, if you ask me, you know, how do you feel about our relationship? And he says, this time, I'm glad we're friends, but I feel like there's something more going on, and I'd like to be more than friends, you say, great, me too, right? (laughs) And you go from there, and she did. Now, Do you see the wisdom there? See, you see the wisdom there. Either way, she's both bold and humble. She's both forward in asking the question, yet deferential in how she received the response. She's aggressive and yet protected herself. It's more than brilliant. It's wise. It was wise and it worked. And the rest is our history. Now, do you know what couldn't have answered that question and many others like it? Well, of course, the rules couldn't, right? The rules couldn't on one hand. And on the other hand, hear this, science couldn't either, right? I mean, because the answer to that question wasn't in a rule or it wasn't under a microscope. 
And the reason why so much of our culture we see is perishing is because we only look for it in one or the other. I mean, the church sort of picks up the rules and the commandments and it beats the culture with them. And the culture picks up science and kind of beats the church with it. Kind of like what you see in that classic American movie. It's the epitome of American cinema, Nacho Libre, right? I mean, you see in Nacho Libre, I mean, Nacho picks up, you know, the church and beats his buddy with it. I cannot believe you have not been baptized. And then his buddy picks up the science and says, I only believe in science. And they go back and forth. And the reason that both of them look foolish is because neither neither of them grasp wisdom. And unfortunately, the Proverbs say, most people don't either. So we got to ask, number two, why is that? Why is it? Why is it so hard then to find wisdom if it's that important? Well, what's so tricky about it is the inconvenient truth that wisdom is just complex. It's just complex. I mean, take a look at verse 12, and you'll begin to see the complexity. Wisdom says here, it says, I, wisdom, dwell together with three things, with prudence, knowledge, and discretion. So wisdom here, wisdom is not just a pithy statement, you know, two phrases back to back. It's not a catchphrase you drop on somebody. No, wisdom is composed of three things. In other words, if you were to give it a a wisdom, a CT scan or to lift up the hood, you'd find this underneath. Look, three things. First, knowledge wisdom is composed of, which is the the Hebrew word for knowing how things really work. Second, there's prudence, which is knowing how things really are. And finally, discretion, which is the Hebrew word for knowing what to do about how things really work and really are. And then Gerhard von Rad, a famous German Bible scholar, took a look at this and he summed it all up and he gave us this great definition of wisdom. And here it is. He said, true wisdom is becoming competent with regard to the realities of life. Isn't that great? It's so great. True wisdom is becoming competent with regard to the realities of life. And he went on to unpack it like this. He said, the wise person does the right thing, the correct thing, even when there are no rules that apply. See, wisdom itself, it's just complex. Knowing how things really work knowing how things really are, and knowing what to do with all of that. It's just not easy most of the time. It's tough to grasp, but it's crucial to have, which is why the chapter, the writer of Proverbs 8 goes on to say, look, by me kings reign, rulers issue decrees that are just, by me princes govern, nobles, all who rule on earth. Oh, what's this telling us? So what, it's, what this is telling us is one of the most profound things that Proverbs has to say. And it shows you why wisdom's complex. You ask, where's that? Well, it's here. This is showing us, these verses show us the essential truth that wisdom answers the how questions of life. That's what it's there for. Wisdom answers the how questions of life. And the how questions of life just aren't easy, are they? No, no. How a king reigns well, not simple. It's complex. The how questions are hard. The how questions are the toughest ones. And the how questions of life are the ones that if you don't get them right, they cost you everything. Everything goes wrong. And let me try to show you how this works. 
There's a great and, great and tragic story in the Bible that took place a few years after the death of King David. It was about David's grandson, a young man named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam came to power because Solomon, Rehoboam's father, had died. And now Rehoboam was king. And the question here is, how is he going to reign? How is the king going to reign? Well, his first test came immediately when a group of leaders came to the new king and they said, hey, hey, listen, king, you know, oh, king, your father Solomon, you know, uh, he worked us pretty hard. He put us in this forced labor. Yeah, 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 he built a temple. He was a really wise guy. But the average person around here has just had enough of the forced labor. Could you lighten up a bit? We'd like to serve you, Rehoboam, but could you please release us from the slavery your father put us under? Rehoboam starts off well enough and he says hey go away for three days and come back I'll give you my answer and then he makes another wise move and he says he calls to him the elders of his nation this group of wise men who had been around for a while and he asks them it's a good move he asks them what should I do well he's got three wise moves in a row right answers the people well calls the right people asks them the right question and then the elders say you know what you should put an end to the forced labor. These people here, we could tell they'd really want to serve you. It would be a great gesture. You'd get your kingdom off on the right foot and win their hearts. So release them from their forced labor. And bam, just like that, that's what Rehoboam did. Problem solved. Everybody lived happily ever after. Except if you know the story, that's not what happened. Not at all, and not by a long shot. Yeah, yeah, Rehoboam called on the elders, and yeah, he asked them what he should do, and yes, that's what they told him. But then Rehoboam decided he was going to invite in a second group of people. He decided he was going to call in his posse, right? I mean, his buddies, his crew, the old college roommates, right? The guys he grew up with, it says. And he asked them the same question, how should I rule? See, the question wasn't whether or not Rehoboam was going to rule. That had already been decided. The question was a wisdom question. How should he rule? And Rehoboam's crew, do you know what they said? What they told him? Oh, they sensed an opening for themselves away into power. They appealed to his pride. And they basically said, Rehoboam, don't listen to the old dudes. They're out of touch. Those people who, who want to get out of forced labor, they're just lazy, right? Make them work harder. Who cares? Rehoboam, you're the king, right? I mean, you're the man. YOLO, Rehoboam, you only live once right I mean haters gonna hate who care what they think let them know who's really in charge tell them tell them you got more power in your little finger than your father had in his whole body and what did Rehoboam do he didn't choose wisely he chose poorly yeah he gave the people the answer his college crew and his buddies gave him and when the people heard the answer they went back home crushed and then when Rehoboam sent his army captain to force him to go back to work they killed the captain and almost killed Rehoboam and from that moment on the kingdom the nation of Israel split never to be united again Rehoboam split the kingdom with one unwise decision by doing the wrong thing at the wrong moment see he wasn't competent was he with regard to the realities of life and he fulfilled the dark prediction of the end of proverbs 8 which says but those who fail to find me harm themselves all who hate me love death let me ask you what did rehoboam lack Did he lack money? No. Did he lack opportunity? No. Did he lack fame? No. Did he lack power? No. What did he lack? He lacked wisdom. 
and he destroyed his nation. You say, well, man, thank God that's not me. That could never happen to me. First of all, I'm not king, you know, but thank goodness. Morgan, I don't have a blind spot that big in my life. I know how to deal with all my stuff. Well, slow down, big fella, <laughs> little lady, because one of the most staggering and frankly challenging parts of the book of Proverbs is its consistent insistence that we all have major blind spots in our lives. We all miss it, and we're all in desperate need of godly Bible wisdom. How so? (sighs) Two things from how the book is composed. First, the book was written, likely, to a group of young people, young scholars, children even, who were being instructed by wiser, older people, teachers, groups of teachers. This is why it starts out saying things like, listen, my son, pay attention, young people, right? Listen up, kids, to what your teacher and fathers have to say. Pay attention, right? So number one, we see this was composed, the book's composed to be studied in a group, literally in a community group. Why? Because, because this, because wisdom's so complex, you can't grasp it all on your own. You just need help. It comes from weeks and months of being instructed and processing this with other people in your life, which, by the way, is another reason you should come back over the next few weeks because you'll be getting closer to how the spirit of the book was composed. But secondly, and even more glaringly, not just the way in which she was composed shows us that we got blind spots and we need wisdom, but how the book is even structured shows you the same. Because, because when you begin the book, right, you've got these first nine opening chapters telling you how important wisdom is. And then you get to, you get to chapters 10 through 15, which say things like, lazy hands make you poor. Hmm? The wicked will not go unpunished. And discipline's the key to a good life. And especially, especially if you were just amening that, you just may have added yourself as a conservative person in here, conservative politically and morally. You read that and you go, yeah, right? I mean, that's right. It's what I've been saying all along. Life's pretty simple. The lazy, you know, you're poor because you're lazy. Justice system never makes mistakes. You can have anything if you just work hard enough, right? And you say, that's what I've been saying all along. Those liberals should read the Bible and get a biblical worldview. But then if you read past those chapters, you get to the end of the book, you keep reading, you see stuff in there that almost completely reverses what it said earlier. It says stuff like the poor person can work hard, but injustice sweeps it all away. It says stuff like the justice system, law enforcement can become corrupt. Leaders can take bribes. Sometimes judges even do the wrong thing on purpose and people suffer. And if you're more of a liberal person here, you read that and you go, yeah, that's right. That's what I've been saying all along. Life's messy and complex. Those conservatives should read the Bible and get a biblical worldview. So which one is it? What does it take to live and make it in life? conservative philosophy or liberal one well the bible throughout and the proverbs here say that what makes life work best isn't liberal or conservative approach but a wise approach a wise approach because sometimes life works this way right sometimes life works that sometimes you are poor because you're lazy and entitled have a victim mentality you need to work harder and sometimes you're poor because a giant system upstream stripped you of every opportunity you could have ever had see Wisdom is knowing which is which. 
Now you're saying, oh man, this wisdom stuff, it's tough, it's complex, to which I would point you back to the second point we've been talking about all along, why wisdom is so hard, right? It is hard. We've got to ask, if it's this hard, but it's that important, how do we get it? How do we get it? Where can we go to get it? Oh, but thankfully, thankfully, the end of the book shows us where to look. Number three, how we get wisdom. If you were new, say you're a new person to any conversation about faith, God, the Bible, religion, spirituality, you're doing a research project comparing the way faith systems talked about how the world was made, how it came to be, why we're all here. And you came to the Bible here in Proverbs chapter 8 and you read this, your mouth would drop wide open. You'd be stunned as you read it. Why? Well, because Eastern, Eastern creation accounts, on one hand, insist that basically the world's an illusion. It's none of it's real. It's all pretend. But Western creation accounts, kind of like the Greeks and the Romans, they insisted, yeah, the world is real, but it's random. Because you got these stories of these gods and goddesses killing one another uh, and out of their corpses, these worlds being made. And So on one hand, half of the world says the world is just an illusion. On the other half, the world says it's random. But then you come to something like Proverbs 8, which says stuff like this. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was formed long ago at the very beginning, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, before he made the world or fields or any of the dust of the earth. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon. I was constantly at his side, filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in God's presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. What is this? Oh, this is better than you even thought. This is utterly unique because this is telling us not just what the universe is, but why it is the way it is. And it's pointing us to how we get wisdom. See, this is telling us that the universe is not just an illusion. It really is real because God made it. But it's not random because it was made on purpose. Nor is it, thirdly, third option, just a machine with no breath in it like secularists can suggest. No, the universe has been designed, this is saying, like an artist paints a canvas or a composer writes a song. But wait a minute, because if something is real and it's designed, that would make it also personal. Personal. And it is. And that's why the writer of this, unlike any other creation account or any other wisdom literature, turns wisdom into not just an idea, but turns it into a person turns it into a person. You say, well, that's nice. You know, I mean, wisdom as a person is a nice poetic device. It helps me pay attention. No, no, no. Again, it's better than that. What this is doing is burying a universe-sized Easter egg in the Old Testament that the New Testament uncovers and shows us in all its glory. Because centuries later, the gospel writer John shows up. And in John chapter 1, which scholar after commentator after teacher says is basically an updated version of Proverbs 8. John says, there's this thing 
you folks call the logos, which was the Greek word for wisdom. See, the logos was the ultimate wise way to live your life. A great life would be about the logos. The logos uh, was about great artwork, and great artwork was about it. It was abstract, unknowable. It was the way to handle every situation. It was the ultimate idea of ultimate wisdom. And the Greeks, one of the wisest cultures that ever existed, said that ultimate wisdom was the logos. Oh, you can see it, but it's like a trophy behind glass. You can't know it or get into it or touch it. But then John has the gall to say, oh, you Greeks, you people, this thing you call ultimate wisdom, this thing you call the logos that you say is behind glass and untouchable and unknowable. John said this, the logos in John chapter one became flesh, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John's saying it's now possible to have an encounter and touch wisdom itself because wisdom isn't just an idea. It's not just a voice. It's a person. John says wisdom is Proverbs 8 come to life. And that person's name is Jesus. Jesus. And the other New Testament writers go on. They make it even more clear and plain. And one of them, a lawyer named Paul, said that Jesus Christ wasn't just the power of God. No, Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. Why would he say wisdom of God? Oh, it's because when you see Jesus, you read about a life that was perfectly lived, about a perfect person who perfectly handled every situation with perfect wisdom. His life, Jesus' life was Proverbs 8 come to life, wasn't it? He said things like, I'm calling out to you. He said, seek me and you'll find me. He said, my kingdom is worth more than anything else you could ever desire. He said, he said if you got me, you got everything. If not, then you don't. See, this is incredible. But it's not all that there is. Because Jesus is the wisdom of God, not just because he responded with perfect wisdom in every conversation, not just because he's the wisdom of God to us, but because Jesus is, was, the wisdom of God for us. For us. How is that? Like this. Every other teacher, sage, guru, and system of wisdom says stuff like, get wisdom or you'll come to ruin. Master wisdom, live the perfect life of wisdom, or you bring destruction on yourself. But Jesus says, come to me, I'm wisdom, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. How is that? Oh, because he wasn't just wisdom to us, he's wisdom for us. He lived the perfect wise life we could never live. He chose wisely and perfectly at every point. Look at him on the cross, forgiving, bleeding, dying to atone for all of mankind's folly including the ultimate folly of putting ultimate wisdom to death why did he do it so that now you and i could not just read about but have a living relationship with wisdom capital w itself with the person of wisdom a person whose loving wisdom can heal your life bit by bit as you allow him in, see? And to become a Christian, therefore, can you see? It's the wisest thing you could ever do. The wisest thing you could ever do. And it happens when you, first of all, repent. You turn your back on the folly of trusting your own self, your own mind, your own life, and you allow this loving king 
to reign perfectly in your life and heart. And that's where becoming a Christian begins. How do we close this way? Three application points briefly, and we'll go to prayer and trust the Lord. First, let me just encourage all of you today. Cry out for wisdom. That's what wisdom says. What Proverbs, just cry out for it. Ask God for it. You don't have it all. He does. Second, study this in a group. That's how it was written. That's how it was composed. You need a group of people, friends, Christians, to study this process together as we go through it. And finally, especially for those of us who have never become a Christian, go, go to Wisdom Today, capital W, and watch how your life changes. Let's pray as we close. Lord, we just, we thank you for today and for this morning. Lord, I'm praying that, especially for those of us who aren't Christians, Lord, that wisdom would enter our heart. Wisdom would enter our heart this morning. Would you meet us now in these moments in Jesus' name? I want to pray for two groups of people this morning. If you're here and you've never, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, never surrendered your life to him as the Lord of your life, you said, today is my day, I want to do that. Would you raise your hand this morning? I want to, I want to pray for you in here. Secondly, I want to pray for any of us in here today who would say, you know what, I just need wisdom. I'm in the middle of a tough situation. There's a tough call I've got to make. I'm in a complex period of my life. And I just need the wisdom of God. If that's you this morning, you'd like me to pray for you. Would you raise your hand? Yeah. Lord, I'm praying for all of these as a in a sense, just obey your word and call out to you and cry out to you for wisdom. And even as you're just sitting there in your chair this morning, you can just say, oh Lord, just give me wisdom. Lord, give me wisdom. I ask you. Mm. Lord, I'm praying for these. Lord, even this week, Lord, the word would come, the solution would present itself, the conviction even just to stand in and press on would take root. Sometimes just the wisest thing to do is to keep going. Sometimes the thing to do is to stop going. Well, either way, we need wisdom. Lord, I pray that these things, knowledge, discretion, prudence, wisdom, we love them and take them into our hearts as individuals, as a church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.